You're drowned by my perfect fire, my perfect life. What's up, hello, everybody? <laughs> and welcome to The Word on the Hill. We are the Lanky Guys. And my name is Father Peter Musset. Father Peter Danger Musset. Dude, that was... that was the podcast. That was exactly the tone in which I did. I'm very proud of you for picking up the cue on that one. Thank you. I appreciate it. My name is Scott Lackluster Powell. <laughs> and we are the Lanky Guys, and we, we are sure so are. excited to bring you the word on the hill. So excited! <laughs> That's... <laughs> Dude, you know what my favorite is is when like kids literally can like just can't contain their excitement oh, and they like look like they're gonna explode. I've seen you like that. I know. Well, that's because I have uh, in some moments in my life I have a childlike exuberance. Many moments, and that's to your uh, to your credit. Dude, I have a I have been having a lot of those, especially after our debate. Uh, Mm. Uh, it was excellent. So mm. for all of those of you, of you who were able to attend the de- who were able to attend the debate mm. up here in Boulder, super excited that you were there, and it was awesome. Yeah. So we had our big annual debate on campus. We debated physician-assisted suicide, which is a big deal in Colorado and many other states right now. Um, if you if you are you you guys are listening from all over the world in the country, we will actually have the whole debate on our website, a video of it. Um, Probably in the next week or two, and it's really it's going to be a really well done video. So it's going to be up on the website. So check the the, the Aquinas Institute website if you want to tap into that. It's a big deal if you want to kind of help be formed and some of the things going on on in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, you. Well, I just figure let's jump in. Why don't man? we I, just jump in? I'm just. I mean, we might as well <clears throat> do the podcast because these people are impatient. No, they no, no they they actually the, the, anybody who they're listens to this podcast ridiculously patient. is ridiculous. All of you people in are getting off purgatory. Posse usually in the first five minutes of our podcast every week. <laughs> Maybe that's why people listen. That's why we have so many listeners. That's exactly. Oh, it. people are getting at it. Do you think priests are giving it as penance to people? Oh, dude, I you would. We could to five lanky guys podcasts in a row. Oh, oh, good heavens to Betsy. Yeah. Well, our first reading today no, is... No, wait, wait, wait. Hold on there. Hold back up the train. It is the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time. We should all know that. Hold on. The fifth? Fifth. <laughs> is, it, is it not the fifth? I totally pre- prepared the wrong readings. No wonder when we were talking about the readings and the insight I had, and you said you didn't see that at all. Hold on. Really Did curious. I not celebrate Mass this last weekend? <laughs> no, I did. Hold I'm on. sorry I'm laughing at that. <laughs> the, the, Did you? I was at Father Brady's mass, so I can't speak to your dude. No, it's uh, um. Okay, so what's going on? So, uh, so it turns out that I, I, I'm looking at my software. I don't know how this happened, but I prepared oh. ordinary time fourth Sunday year uh, year cycle C. Really? <laughs> Which I gosh, I mean, and I you really ahead of your time. I really studied hard. Oh shoot! Today. What are the, what's the what's the first reading? Oh, I mean, I'm just curious what book you're in. Oh, I was in Jeremiah. Really. Yeah, wow. it, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Psalm 71, 1 Corinthians. I, wow. Well, 1 Corinthians is consistent. For, uh, you know, uh, if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or cling oh. symbol. Yeah, and then, those are good. And then Luke, good if today you hear his, uh, he fulfilled stuff in their hearing. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. I, I feel really silly right nah, now. No, you shouldn't. We've uh, all been there. Um, well, you, uh, man, I'm excited. We're going to off-road today for me. 
Dude, this is off-road time. We're gonna. Uh, well, now maybe what I was talking about before will make more sense. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We. We. Uh, okay. Because you just stared at me blankly, and you, really... you might want to edit some part of that. Oh, I, don't I will. Know. Believe okay. me, and it's it's. Weird. Okay, sweet. So with the, we're in the fifth Sunday in ordinary time. You bet. Year B. B for boy and baloney. Our first reading is from uh, Job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> soft laugh. Or, uh, the softest, soft pastor joke followed with the softest laugh. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Job 7, 1 to 4, followed by 6 to 7. Indeed, which is the happiest reading you'll get all year. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> our responsorial psalm comes from Psalm 147, and we're doing verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5, and 6. And the responsorial itself comes from 3a. So take that. Yeah. And then our reading of the second variety mm, very good. is of the Corinthians. The first attempt at contacting the Corinthians. Uh, that's not true when we've talked about I it. I know, but I'm just saying it. And I'm trying to be witty and no, funny. No, it is witty, but it's just historically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is the attempt to be in contact with the Corinthians in the numbered first variety. Very good. Um, chapter 9, 16 to 19. Mm. And then we jump a couple to 22 to 23. Very good. Um, I never, I haven't read any of the intermediate um, uh, verses. So good. Well, you haven't read any of them. I know. Because <laughs> you prepared the other one. Yeah, this um, is going to be fun. This is going to be great. And the gospel is from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, which I'm really excited to get to. I've, 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 I've duly marked it. <laughs> good. <laughs> As you should have. I just want to read. So our first reading, I just want to read it. Okay. Just because it's it's I'm just excited for whoever the lectors are at mass just to be you know, just to deal with this. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little part of my life. Okay. Okay. So for daily mass, this is what I do to preach. The first time I'm hearing it is when the lector proclaims it. I've always wondered that about you. Not because I see it in your homilies, but because I know you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so uh, so daily mass, I always like I I just don't reading the I, because the privileged place of reflection on the scriptures is in the liturgy itself. That's true. So I just so it's it's in a certain sense it's a it's um it's a humbling towards the Holy Spirit both for my own life and um and it's also an expression of my profound slothfulness. So slothfulness <laughs> versus sloth, which is an animal. So when I'm in the confessional and somebody confesses um that they've that they're they've committed the sin of sloth. Yeah. I think of the little animal that is there where sloth. Well, and sloths are not very slow. I mean, I always thought a sloth would be like a snail, but they're not. They're actually quite active. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Which is ironic. They're, they're kind of like honey badger, dude. They'll mess you up, man. Those sloths. Honey badger. <laughs> yeah. Is that a friend of yours? Yeah. Just, you didn't say that. You didn't include an article there. Just It's like honey badger. Yeah. I, my, there, my buddy, my old next door neighbor. There's there. some YouTube video where like some dude is like going off oh. about honey badger going to kill you or something like <laughs> It's just absurd. I don't even know. Yeah. So read me about job. Uh, okay. get, I, I need a job here. So this is this is uh, just just let this soak in for a sec. Okay. Morning, everybody. Welcome to mass. <laughs> you know, here's our first reading. Job spoke, saying, "Is not man's life on earth a drudgery? Are not his days those of hirelings? He is a slave who longs for the shade, a hireling who waits for his wages. So have I been assigned months of misery, and troubled nights have been allotted to me." If in bed I say, when shall I arise? And the night drags on. I am filled with restlessness till the dawn. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to end without hope. I remember that life is like the wind. I shall not see happiness again. 
the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. <laughs> what? It's just the worst, isn't it? Dude. It's depressing. Yeah, I, I actually feel tired having listened to you that. You should. That's kind of why I wanted to actually read the whole thing. Yes. Okay, before we get into it, a word about Job. Okay. Um, the book, because we, I don't believe we've really talked about Job no, no. On this podcast. No, okay. no. My, my thoughts are like, I always thought that Job was like one of the earliest scripture writings that we have. He, yes, it is. And actually, if you want to put, if you want to um, put him chronologically, figure out where he is, he is in. Well, we don't know for sure, but I think the best guess is that he falls somewhere in the patriarchal age. So you know what that is? It's around the, the patriarchal time being. You know, the, the earliest part of salvation history with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, those, those folks. He, he might even be around the time of Joseph. There, there actually is a reference in, where is it? It's in, it's in Genesis 46, verse 13, um, a guy named Eob or, or Job. And I wonder if it's actually the same person. Genesis forty six thirteen. So around the time of, of Joseph. Oh the wow. Dream coat. So we're not sure, but I think the best guess is that that he is somewhere in that age, whether that's him in the genealogy or not. But the reason we think this is because, you know, Job's possessions are measured in terms of cattle and servants, which would have been likely then. His enemies are are nomadic um, Chaldeans from the Abrahamic times, right? It seemed the people he's interacting with seems to be the people around the time of, you know, Abraham and thereafter. Um, Job is the father of his household, remember, and he performs priestly duties. So it seems like it's prior to the Levitical priesthood because he's acting like a priest, being the father of the house before golden calf and all that was lost, right? Um, yeah, let's see. The the God is most frequently called Almighty, which is the term El Shaddai, which is which is common to that part of Genesis, actually. So, anyway, just just a couple of uh, historic notes about when we're actually dealing with. And knowing that, I actually think tells us a lot about the nature of what Job is dealing with. So you, you kind of know the the um, the basic gist of Job. Do you remember this whole thing? Um, yeah, basically, <laughs> um, there's like a scene in heaven where you have Satan and he's like, he's like, yeah, everybody's horrible. And he's like, not my boy. My boy Job is awesome. And he's like, he's like, he's not going to be awesome if I totally take everything from him. He just loves you because of what you do for him. And he and then God gives Satan permission to like throw down, and yeah. so he basically loses everything, and including all of his friends. And his friends say, "Curse God!" And well, there's so all these trials and stuff. There are the, the book actually starts off with a wager, essentially. So starting in and really what God's conversation with the evil one is is a wager, and it's articulated this way: Can man love God for his own sake? And that's really sort of the wager that God sets up, or that Satan rather sets up with God, right? Can man love God for his own sake? Not because of the possessions that he has or the goods that he has or, or you know, what God has blessed him with. What if you strip all of those things away? Does man even have the capacity to love God just for God and not because my life is good and it's comfortable? Thank you, God, for giving me these things. Thank you for giving me my nice family and life and everything else. Yeah. Is that possible? And remember... We're dealing with humanity in a time before you have things like the Ten Commandments, before you really have the Torah, before Moses, before the law, before any of these prophets or anything. Before Reptevia. <laughs> is, that, is that a movie? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fiddler on the Roof. Is it, right? yeah. Oh, oh, that's. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think Job is is a little bit like Reptevia. I think it's kind of a it's a kind of a similar Job story. It's actually, tr- it is. But again, keep in mind this is before we have virtually any revelation from God about Himself. 
And we have some things. He's spoken to Abraham. He's given us little hints. But it's really not until after Moses that God begins to really reveal himself in this way that we can actually read and discern and actually work through. Up until now, I mean, so what we're really dealing with, what Job is really dealing with is not man's response to the Torah or man's response to God's word or, or, or you know, his, his rules or the ways he's asked us to live. It is, does man have innately built into himself, even without the word revealed, even without revelation, even without any of these things, yeah. does he have the capacity built into his very being of loving God for his own sake? That's the question we're dealing with. So if you strip away all aspects of the faith, that's where Job sort of sits, which makes the book, to me, I think even more profound because he doesn't have the benefit of reading the encouraging words of the scripture or the Torah or reflecting on the creation story or any or, of or, or even the saints or yeah, any of the, the sacramental life. Like <clears throat> right. basically the only thing he has is uh, some pot shards and some ash. Cause he, like, right. he just scrapes away bust pustules with pot shards and stuff. I mean like Gross. the dude, the dude really gets hammered. He, he totally gets hammered. And where we are, sorry, I'm, I'm flipping through my little outline where we are in the text. So if you remember, um, there, there's sort of Job, he begins to have these tests. So, so the first couple of verses about the integrity of Job, God sticking up for him. And then Satan is given, like you said, sort of this a little bit of authority to kind of do what he wills. And, you know, there's this, uh, there's a bunch of disasters that happen. There's Job's reaction. Then there's all these other tests and Job's illness and then the loss of his family. And then his buddies show up. And that's when things start to get really ugly, right? And his buddies are the worst. And his, his friends all show up and give speeches, right? Job basically curses the day he was born. He doesn't curse God, no. And this is, it, Job is hard to read because you can read through it and be like, well, he, he's losing the wager. Like, Job is totally giving up on everything. He never curses God, though. He curses the day he was born. He's very upset. He's, he's incredibly distraught. But he, in the end, I think he does hold it together, um, and where we fall in the story, so his friends show up and basically give speeches, which are terrible, terrible advice. They all give lousy advice. <laughs> Horrible um, advice. And where we've just left in the story is a guy named Elfa, uh, Eliphaz, Eliphaz, in chapter four and five, show up, shows up, and, and he's kind of, you know, been given his piece, and he's like, well, you should do this, and you're totally, you're totally hosed, and all this stuff. And what we're getting is really Job's response um, to Eliphaz. Is that right? I'm flipping through a lot of notes. And so Job is responding, and he he basically, in chapter 6, has called this guy. You know, he says this, this is this is ridiculous. In addition to dishonesty, he's, he's accusing his friends of heartless cruelty. You're dishonest about God. You're heartless. You're cruel. You don't understand. You know, th these friends are terrible. So Job is giving a long speech. And in the midst of that, after he finishes telling Eliphaz that you're you're just an idiot, you're, you're terrible, you're a horrible human being, he goes on and says, but you know what? This is awful. This is, this is actually terrible. And the thing I like about Job is his utter and complete honesty. Yes. That it really does stink. It's and, horrible. And like, he says, my eyes shall not see happiness again. He doesn't have the benefit of divine revelation to know that there actually is a, res a resurrection of the body at some point in the future and that he will have yeah. eyes again. But he's not saying all is lost, there's no hope anymore. He is kind of saying, woe is me, but, but he yes. doesn't lose his faith. Now, we're left in the Old Testament. Now, he, now here's the thing. I don't want to spend that much time more than this on Job. But what we're left with is this question that Job asks that essentially does not get answered. 
Yeah. Job is not really resolved. The book sort of ends with, I'm not satisfied with the resolution, right? There is restoration. I, I mean, that's the thing. Job is sort of restored and his fortunes are restored in the end of the book, but they're restored in, in sort of an earthly way. But you can look back and be like, well, that, that's really nice for Job, but that doesn't always happen like that. What about the people who die? We had this debate on physician-assisted suicide last night. What about the people who do die just in misery? You know, there was all these anecdotes that came up last night about, about well, you know, if we allow people to legally end their life when the suffering seems insurmountable, what about all those people that, you know, didn't make that choice and then they recovered and, and they had these wonderful lives afterwards? Well, what about the people who that doesn't happen to? Yeah. Are their lives any less valuable? Is there any less worth to that existence that they have, even if it is hard? And Job's implicit answer is is no. It is still that even though Job does see some restoration in a material way, it doesn't change the fact that his story could have ended before that. He could have just died in utter and, and, you know, absolute misery. What would we say about Job then? I mean, what Job teaches us is is steadfastness, this this uh, perseverance, this endurance. And he asked this question. Fortitude. Yeah, it's fortitude, which is which is a very strong word. But it begs this question, what do we do with this? What do you do with suffering? That's that's really the question of Job. What do we do with human suffering? And that was the question of the debate last night. Yep. How do we reconcile a world that suffers? How do we reconcile human beings that suffer? And the thing that's remarkable, I think, and I've said this before on the podcast, this is the pedagogy of the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't, at least to my satisfaction, doesn't answer tell that question. You. Well, it doesn't tell you, but it, it shows you. I don't think it does. Even with Job? It gives you some insights but it doesn't fully show you. Job asks the question. It gives you the sense that there is an answer. You know that there is an answer, but he doesn't show you what that answer is. Yeah. That's my contention with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament does this continuously. It tells you there is hope, but it doesn't quite tell you what it is. Yeah. All the prophets, that is the nature of the prophets. Look, you're suffering. You had your nation taken away. You're, you're, you're totally hosed. There is hope on the horizon, but the Old Testament ends before that hope actually comes to fruition. Yeah. Job could have died in abject misery. What happens then? Well, we actually don't know until Jesus shows up and tells us. And that is a good segue, I think, to the psalm, because the psalm answers then, once again, we've seen this the last few weeks, the psalm answers the question raised by the first reading. Yep. And again, I feel like every week for the last few weeks, we've had that exact dichotomy. And the psalm says, praise the Lord who heals the brokenhearted. Praise the Lord who heals the brokenhearted. Job is brokenhearted. Praise the Lord who heals that. We might never see that healing on earth, but it will be healed because there actually is more. And I mean, that's one of the, the problems in reading the Old Testament. Job sees his fortunes restored in a, in, a, in a very concrete, tangible way. And that is why in the ancient world, and certainly for the people of the Old Testament, there became this understanding of if God is just, then those who do good will be rewarded in this life. Yeah. And those who do evil will be punished in this life. And the afterlife was sort of an abstraction. We weren't sure what to do with that. But then as the Old Testament moves on, you get all these people who are very good and they suffer in this life. And all these people who are very, very wicked and they flourish in this life. And you have this, this simplistic idea. I mean, you know, when we get to the New Testament and you have somebody like Zechariah and Elizabeth yep. who are barren, everyone's like, well, what did you do? Sure, You surely must have done something. Yes, don't call me punished. Shirley. Because <laughs> you're being punished. And, and Luke is like, no, they didn't. They no. did nothing. It, it, but you it, don't it, always see it. Yeah, and that's actually where, like, why did the Tower of Galilee fall on those people? It's because they skipped. Siloam. Siloam, yeah. Why did it fall on them? I mean, 
Siloam, yeah, Siloam, yeah. I don't, and it's that same yeah. question, yeah. Yeah, and it's we we the I, Old Testament can't satisfactorily answer it. It does tell you the Psalms do say the Lord does heal the brokenhearted. It doesn't even say will. It's not even future tense. He does heal the brokenhearted. That is his job. That's what he does. But again, we haven't quite seen exactly how. And I, I, I'm teaching a class with the, the focus crew on the Psalms. And, you know, the whole nature of the Psalms, the Psalms are set up in terms of five books. That's how, how it numbers itself. Um, and each of those five books represent a point in salvation history. So although the Psalms were written over many, many years, I think David wrote many of them and other kings and everything, they weren't compiled together into a whole until right after the exile, probably. So you're dealing with a, a nation of Israel who have seen their kingdom destroyed, their kings slaughtered, their land taken away. They're living on a land that someone else's. There's no tabernacle. The presence of God has departed from them. And they're left in this state of what now? And so they gather up all these psalms, which actually do the job of looking back and saying, so, you know, the first two books of psalms are all psalms of David and the kingdom. And they're recounting that there was a time when there was a kingdom and it was great and it was beautiful. And then the next series of psalms goes into, it, it's Psalm, uh, book three, goes into the exile. And that's when you get all these psalms of like, where are you, God? The waters have reached my neck. My only companion is darkness. There is nothing. Everything stinks, right? Yeah. And then you get these next series of Psalms in book four, which say, well, that's all true, but God is still king. Yeah. He is still there. We have to hold on to that. And then you get the final book of the Psalms, which says, and not only is God God, someday we will see what that means. Someday that will make sense. But the Psalms, the Psalter only makes sense in that context of salvation history, where you have a people of God saying, we don't know what to do. We trust that God is God. We trust that he'll restore us but we have no idea what that's going to look like. And sometimes I think that's the only honest human response to suffering is that we trust that God is God. And I don't know what this is going to look like, but the psalmist is correct in 147 that the Lord does heal the brokenhearted. Yeah. And I, I, I think that our whole lives are training in mystery, actually. Right. Like th there, there's the cheap use of, oh, that's a mystery, which is something that we have to avoid yeah. in our lives. Um, which but, is not what the word mysterion actually means. No, no. And, and this is the thing is that training in mystery is we become familiar with divine patterning. I mean, that's one of the big works that we're doing right here is how do, how has God worked in the world before us? Yeah. And can we see some sort of coordination in Christ? Can we see some sort of literal experience of it in our own lives? Yes. Like, and, and because of that, then we have hope that the meaning will be shown to us in the time that we are needing to know it. Yes, absolutely. Because this, because every this is one of the refrains that's changed my life. That she says, "Was it not necessary that we had to go through?" Yeah, the, the and, road to Emmaus. Yeah, yeah, and and like, was it not necessary that all of these things needed to tra transpire? And that's where the Lord gives us the profound hope. We see Job, and when when we get to meet Job, thanks be to God in heaven, we're gonna be like, "Dude, what was what was going on?" Yeah. And like, we'll be able to see clearly the effect and the influence of that. And yes. but but that's the mysterion is that we have these clues and these insights into the divine pattern, into exactly how God works in the world. Yes. And 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 that's and that's training in the mystery. That's what this this whole expression is. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So that yeah, we can actually encounter the mystery of our own lives. That's a great insight. That's a really great insight. Thanks. I, I didn't read any of the readings today, but but you're that's a brilliant insight. Though. <laughs> I know, but just... that's a good lead into First Corinthians, and I I actually I have to be honest with you. I didn't know what to do with the First Corinthians reading until about 
20 seconds ago. Ooh. And I think I get it. Talk so to me. Let, let's check this out. So 1 Corinthians 9 and a couple of different verses. Ooh, I want to read. Paul says, brothers and sisters. Let's read it together. Brothers and sisters, not like together. <laughs> I, I, I was going to try to like start talking with you. And I was like, I was like, this is really fun. This is if like one of your I classes. preach the, the gospel. gospel. Sorry. Do you say this is like one of my classes? <laughs> yeah. You're like, let's read this together. But not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You read man. it out loud and they follow they along in your Bibles. <laughs> follow along in your Bibles, boys and girls. Whatever. Fuck Peter. <laughs> Okay, if I preach the gospel, this is no reason for me to boast, for an obligation has been imposed on me, and woe to me if I don't preach it. If I do so willingly, I have a recompense. But if unwillingly, then I've been entrusted with a steward. But if unwillingly, then I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What then is the recompense? That when I preach, I offer the gospel free of charge, so not as to make full use of my right in the gospel. And then we jump a couple of verses. He says, although I am free in regard to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so as to win over as many as possible. To the weak, I have become weak. To win over the weak, to the strong, uh, I have become all things to save at least some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may too have a share in it. This is the whole, Paul became all things to all people, right? So what's going on here and how on earth does this apply to the first reading? Well, I think it actually applies perfectly. A little context. You're still reading. Um, I was reading the intermediate uh, yeah. Gospels about I became a Jew for the Jews and uh, and and his nature of being an outlaw in law, right? All right. that all that sort of stuff. I can I can understand why they didn't include it. It's a very complex. Um, it's very complex. It's a very complex passage <laughs> of um, of scripture. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is so. So take a step back for a second. Here's what's going on. Back it in up. The back context. it up. Back it up. In first, so we've been dealing with the whole marriage uh, talk in First Corinthians last yes. couple of weeks. Uh-huh. We've jumped from that, and the the church has has taken us straight over chapter eight, which is my favorite chapter, oh. which is the whole chapter about meat offered to idols. Yes, and I very much understand why we've taken that out because that takes a lot of unpacking to deal with. But basically, what you have going on in, in the city of Corinth is a bunch of Christians who are doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing, right? They're, they're basically, here's the nutshell, they're going to these pagan worship ceremonies, right? Yep. And their logic, and, and there's other Christians that are like, well, wait a second, why are those Christian leaders going to the pagan temples? And the logic that these supposedly wise, remember they valued wisdom uh, um, more than they should have, but these supposedly wise Christians were basically saying, here's their logic, Okay, if I go to the temple of Athena, say, right, okay. and I am hanging out with my family, and I love my family, and I don't want to abandon them just because I've become a Christian. Yep. But I go to the temple of Athena, somebody offers a goat, you know, the priest offers a goat to the goddess Athena. Who are they actually offering that goat to? Does, it, does Athena actually exist? Well, and this is where I think you'd say no. No, she's not actually a god. There's no goddess. There is only one true god. Now you can, I, I know you you're can about say to go, this. But. Yeah, the, yeah. There is the reality and the concept of who Athena is as Athena is wrong. So if a goat is being offered to the goddess Athena, the logic is there is no goddess Athena. There's only one god. And remember, they're super wise and well catechized, so they know there's only one god. Jesus Christ is him incarnate. So there's no Athena. So if somebody offers a goat to Athena, they're actually offering a goat to nothing. Right. So guess what their logic is? That you can eat meat because this does not exist. I can go to these temples. I can eat the meat offered to this god because it's not offered to anything. Yep. So who cares? Because what's the logic? I know better. I know. It, it, it would be it would be like, hey, we're gonna go um, uh, offer um, meat sacrifice to gnomes. Right, because there's no real gnome. The, the king gnome is going to be, he's going to be satisfied. We're going to offer meat to some unicorns. 
take it even. I mean, uh, concretize it. I, I mean, I know you're, but you know, you you I can I can offer a little incense to a Hindu god because I actually don't believe those really exist. That's a very dangerous reality, though. I mean, number one, I'm being disingenuous to another faith tradition. I'm I'm lying about something. But also, what's happening in in Corinth is that Paul's saying, "Well, wait a second. That's great that you know there's one true God. That's wonderful that you're well catechized. But what about all the people who aren't quite as well catechized as you, who are seeing you going into these pagan temples, absolutely, and eating this meat? Are they not going to be scandalized by you? And guess what the response of the wise Corinthians is? Don't do it. No, their no. That's is, Paul's. That's, that's Paul's. Paul's response. But what's so when he says, "Look, you're scandalizing people." What do you think their response is? No, we're not. No, that's not their response. It's I, interesting. I don't remember. Their response is basically, "It's not my problem." Oh yeah, I know better. If it's yeah, not my fault if they don't know there's one true God. Totally, it ain't my problem if they don't understand that. There's their job to be catechized. What does it matter to me if this person's being misled? That's their fault. That's their issue. And that's when Paul brings up the whole thing. He's like, you know what? If I do anything that has any chance of leading someone else to sin, I will abandon. He says, if if there's a chance that any meat offered to something could lead somebody else to sin, I'll become a vegetarian for the rest of my life. Not because meat is bad, but because I'm so terrified of leading someone else to sin that I'm going to give up what is rightfully mine. And so in chapter 9, when we step in, Paul's entered into a discussion of rights. And this is, I think, really pertinent to us Americans. But it's pertinent to the Corinthians because they're big on talking about their rights. Well, I have a right to go to these pagan temples. I mean, that's where my family goes. I have a right to do this. Right. And Paul says, you know what? I have a whole lot of rights. I have a right to have a wife. But guess what? I'm celibate for the sake of the kingdom of God so I can serve you freely. I have the right to get a paycheck for preaching because that's actually what people who who do ministerial work should do. He's like, but you know what? I decided not to get a paycheck so nobody could ever accuse me of trying to swindle them out of money. I have a right to all sorts of stuff, but I have abandoned some of those rights for the sake of something higher, for the sake of it. I have a right to eat meat, but I'm not going to because I don't want any chance of leading someone into sin. And he goes on. This is where we enter in. He says, if I preach the gospel, this is no reason for me to boast um, and et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I offer it willingly. But then we jump down to that Bonaparte. Although I am free in regard to all, that's where we talk about freedom and rights. I said, I made myself a slave. Yeah, I'm free. And yes, I have certain things, but I made myself a slave. So as to win over as many as possible. To the weak, I became weak to win over the weak. If somebody is scandalized by someone else eating meat, yeah. I'm actually going to join myself to the person scandalized. Yes. Not be scandalized, but I'm, I'm going to actually sacrifice something to walk with them. Yes. Now, does that all make sense contextually? Absolutely. So here's where I think this fits with our readings. Okay. He's And again, I didn't see this before. I think Paul is answering... The accusations of Job's friends. What? What is is the proper way to approach? What is the proper way that his friends should have approached Job? Because how they do approach him is high above him, mightier, saying, well, we understand the reality. We know what's going on, even if you don't. We see all these things in your life. You must be doing this thing. You must be punished because of this. Paul's saying, no. To those suffering, to the weak, I became weak. What does Jesus actually do to humanity? He sees a suffering humanity, so he becomes a suffering human. God could have sat on his cloud and struck us with a bunch of bolts of lightning and said, you stupid idiots. But he doesn't do that. He becomes weak. For our sake, he em- the Philippians, right? He emptied himself and took the form of a slave and was crucified and died on a cross 
Because like Paul, for the weak, he became weak. Because quite frankly, you know this. What's the best way to do ministry? Oh, it's to stand up on a soapbox and yell at people. Absolutely. Or to tell them all the things they're doing wrong. Going to hell. No. Or is it to go and sit with them in their suffering and walk with them and help try to carry their burden? Now now we're talking. This is precisely what Job's friends could not and did not do. Yes. And that's why it relates. Because even if Job is left in the state that he's left in, what God wants to do is not just... See, here's the thing about suffering. We're going to suffer. Whether we're good, whether we're bad, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, we're all going to suffer. Rich and poor, what, everybody got to suffer. Rich poor, everybody got to do it. But what God doesn't want to do is just take it all away and say, oh, forget about it. You're a follower of Jesus now. Everything's happy and you can all pick out your Mercedes, right? Right. It's not a health and wealth gospel. It's a God who says, okay, I'm going to take your suffering and I'm going to walk with you in that. I'm going to help carry it and I'm actually going to make that suffering into into something beautiful. And quite frankly, yes. You know, what? 4000 years later, we're reading the story of Job's suffering, yes. and I think people thousands of years later can still be encouraged and brought to life from that suffering. God did not take Job's suffering away. He transformed it into something that's beautiful. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But that's it does. what I'm seeing in, in Paul's letter. Because I was trying to figure out, okay, what's the church trying to, why, why this one? Is it just because it's linear and kind of follows through what we've been doing through ordinary time? But no, I, I think it's the proper response that Job's friends ought to have had. Dude, that's... Which really, I thought was kind of cool. That's awesome. That's epic, actually. You're epic. Dude, well played. You you well played. Dude, like rolling, dude, you, you were rolling double sixes on that one. You're rolling double sixes on that one. So let us get into the <laughs> Gospel of Mark. Oh, Yes. This gospel, it's cool because it, it literally picks exactly up from when the, where the last one stopped. I think the last few weeks have done this. Yeah. But it, there's a there's a really cool tie-in. Um, should we just read it? We've been reading all these. It's, yeah. It's, and, it's he, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever, and it, and immediately they told him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And then the fever left her, and she served them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And you know, all... let's pause on that first part. Let's take these piece by piece. Dig it. So that first part. So so remember our reading last week? What was the gospel last week? Do you remember? I don't. It was the uh, Jesus in the synagogue, and there's that guy with the demon, and the demon's like, I know who you are. Yeah, and he says, quiet, God. come out of him. Says, and Shut up, yeah. So that's where. So then it says, upon leave it. So he just left the synagogue, where he's just performed his first exorcism, right? Yeah. He's he's cast out a demon, and what's neat is that the first exorcism is directly tied to the first physical healing, mm. right? So he just performs an exorcism, then he leaves the synagogue. He goes into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, and the mother-in-law was there with a, a physical infirmity, and so what what Mark is showing us is that Jesus is. Authority is um, over everything. It's from over demonic possession. It's from human illness. It's from sickness. It's all in the ancient world and for the Gospels. Um, illness is, is often related to demonic possession. Not that demons are causing our illnesses, but that God has authority over all of it. So, it, it, But the other thing, I, I saw this insight. I was reading Mary Healy's book on the Gospel of Mark. But there's this great insight that after the synagogue service, Jesus enters the house of Simon and Andrew. And what... Uh, what you're seeing is now that the disciples have committed themselves to Jesus and his ministry. What does Jesus do next? He enters their home and he takes up their intimate concerns of even their family members, right? They commit themselves to him. And what's Jesus' next step? I'm going to go into your house and meet your family and care for them as well. You know, what's interesting is that a canon, I think it's canon 532 
actually d- instructs pastors that they are to go to the parishioners where the parishioners are really? and take up their anxieties and concerns. Man, so this it. is straight this out is of it. the gospel. And because I've been meditating upon that recently, I just was and reading First Corinthians. Remember, that's what Paul said. Absolutely. So it, that's not what Job's friends did. No, so we're seeing the counter. You're seeing the question of Job now answered in the light of the church. And answered in law, which is actually really beautiful. Really cool. Like, because just reading all the canons for um, for what it means to be a pastor, like, gosh, I didn't even put that connection together, but that's really beautiful. That's really cool. Yeah. That is really beautiful. Yeah, I, I saw that this morning. I was like, yeah, he does. It's not just, oh, I went to this house, but I want to know you and your family and your concerns. And it's just, it's really beautiful. And again, that's what you're commanded to do. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's the law. That's the law. Mm-hmm. And of course, then Jesus. You know, there's another insight in here um, that Mary Healy says this, the disciples demonstrate the Christian response to troubles. They There's a problem, right? There's a mother-in-law with a fever. They immediately go to Jesus with the problem, even without knowing what he's going to do. Problem arises. I go to Jesus. What do we do? <laughs> Jesus, do something. Yeah. Which is, which is just kind of simplistic, not simplistically, but simply beautiful. But Canon 529, paragraph one, says this. In order to fulfill his office diligently, a pastor is to strive to know the faithful entrusted to his care. Therefore, he is to visit families, sharing especially in the cares, anxiety, and grieves of the faithful, strengthening them in the Lord and prudently correcting them if they are failing in certain areas. (laughs) With generous love, he is to help the sick, particularly those close to death, by refreshing them solicitly with the sacraments, commending their souls to God. And then it goes on. And then you see God the poor, the afflicted, the lonely, those exiled from the country, and those who are weighed down by special difficulties. He is to work so that spouses and parents are supported in fulfilling their proper duties and is to foster the growth of the Christian life in the family. Like, it's just really really cool. Yeah, it's just really cool. I just like that that expression and how how kind of concrete it's laid out. Yeah. That ain't no theory right there. No, seriously, that is, that's... Thus it is written. I'm sorry, I feel like I interrupted you on something. No, it's all right. Um, I was just saying that when Jesus approaches the mother-in-law, it says he he, uh, grasped her hand and helped her up. What it says in Greek, literally, is that Jesus grasped her hand and raised her up. So it's actually the same language that's used when Jesus is is resurrected. Yeah. It, so it prefigures his res- resurrection in a certain sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, the beginning of Mark is is pointing toward the end, which is which is always nice. Hegairen outen. Yeah, dude. Yeah, man. Yeah. But then we go on. It says when it was evening after sunset, they brought. So they obviously hear about this and they're like, oh, great. I know an ill and possessed person. <laughs> so they're all bringing their their neighborhood ill and possessed people. Yep. And the whole town gathered at the door. They're like, we got somebody for you here, too. And so it says he cured many who were sick with various diseases. He drove out demons, not permitting them to speak because he knew they knew him. Remember, just like last week, yep. he says this demon needs to be quiet. Why? Probably because he knows that they're going to reveal his identity at the wrong moment, right? Well, or something. Yeah, well, no, uh, it's because well, they're trying to do exorcism. So yeah. it's exorcism, counter-exorcism. They're, they're trying to counter-exorcise Jesus. Yeah, certainly. They're certainly. like, we know your name, dude. And he's like, done. He's you, like, donezo, yo, out of here. Do you see where it says that, that he cured, um, yeah, he cured those who were sick? Do you see in the Greek what word it uses? This is kind of a um, Cured, um, the, which verse, 34? Um, yes. Um, and he healed many who were sick, 34. Yep. Um, a, a gene, no. um, he healed is therapeutic. Uh, 
Therapuo. Oh, yeah, Therapuon. Yeah, Therapuon. So what word do we get from Therapuo? Therapy. Yeah, which is just kind of, I, I don't know. I thought that was kind of a cool thing. It's it's Because therapy, at least in English, you know, it doesn't just imply, bam, you're healed. There's a miracle that's happened. It means taking care of and actually restoring someone, in a, you know, in a... In a deeper way. I, I just like that that's the word it uses. It's not like, bam, you're healed, which yep. probably is what's happening. But what's Im- implied is that Jesus is bringing them back. He's healing them in a much deeper level. I just thought that was a cool little little side note. Yeah. But then we get to a, a whole nother thing. So, um, Heterotherapeutism. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. In the past tense. Yeah. It's using the aorist. But um, then we get to the end. It says, rising very early before dawn, he left, and he went to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him. And on finding him, they said, everybody's looking for you. And he told them, let us go on to the nearby villages that I may preach there also. We're out of here, guys. For this purpose I have come. So they went into their synagogues preaching and driving on demons through the whole of Galilee. The same thing. Um, I love that. Again, I'm, I'm stealing a little bit of this from Mary Healy. Jesus has just, for the first time, really displayed these huge shows of this power and authority, and he's casting out demons, and his fame is going crazy. Everybody's banging down the door to get him. And there's this there's this note of, of simple humility that in the midst of that, he just needs to go off and pray. Like, th- th- he, there is, we see an insight, I think, into his humanity. He is fully divine, but he's also fully human. He's like, I need to reconnect with my father right now. I mean, this is great, but I don't know. I mean, we, I, well, I would just want to look for more fame. Like, yeah, bring it on. I'm the man. But well, he's like, no, I'm, I have to. Well, he, he could have done his whole ministry from that house. He could have. Absolutely. He could have just let all of the world come to him. Yeah, absolutely. And just set up a little kingdom and have and hold court. But he said, no, I'm going to go to them. Yes. And that's actually exactly. it, which is which is exactly which is exactly what your canon was saying. Remember, it's not yes. let them all come to you and have a meeting in your office. It's no, you go to their houses. Yes, that's important. I mean, that's Paul's whole ministry. Isn't it interesting that Paul, who could have you know Tim Gray liked to say Paul could have had a teaching position or a rabbiship in any yeshiva in the world. He was the most learned guy of his time, but he packs it up to become an itinerant preacher, and he just wanders going to where people are. He's not waiting. You know, the rabbis of the time, the best rabbis would have their students come to them. They would flock to them, and everyone would come and want to be there and follow them. Jesus, and Paul alike, but remember, Jesus goes out and finds his. He goes to them. He seeks them out. Then he says, come. Rabbis didn't do that. I mean, it, it almost seemed pathetic for a rabbi to have to go out looking for his students. Like, that's a good rabbi. People want to be around you. But Jesus goes and finds his, and it's always the last people you'd expect. But but Paul, too, he's going to, again, the least likely people that you'd ever expect. But in a, in a you know, in a bigger picture kind of way, what it's doing is, again, reflecting what's going on in Job. He's going to the weak. He's going to the ones who are suffering, the ones who need this most. I mean... I don't know what Peter, James, and John were like, or all these guys, but the disciples are a disaster. I mean, they're a wreck. They're ignorant. They're stupid. They fight with each other. Jesus goes to them, seeks them out, and restores them, therapeutos them, right? Brings them back to life in a certain sense. Paul goes out to these communities all over the world who have never heard the word of God, who have never had the Torah, who don't know any of this, the people who need it most, and he brings them back into the family that they were always supposed to be a part of. He's going to the Jobs and he's bringing them back to life, but not just by, you know, this is a neat scene that Jesus has this authority to sit and say something and bam, it's done. 
But again, that's not what Jesus is ever looking for. And, you, and John especially shows this. Whenever Jesus has the people who are just kind of looking for the miracles, yeah. he always withdraws. And he, you even see this. Yeah. Everyone's flipping out about the miracles. And he's like, no, it's time to go now. Because it's really not about the miracles. Nope. It's not about just being physically restored. Right. It's about the faith of the individual and how they understand what's happening. I mean, there's plenty of people that were not physically restored, but they've been healed nonetheless. That's why the word therapeuo... I think it's such an it's an important word because it's not just a miraculous. Oh, my hand is healed. It is a deeper internal healing and bringing back to life in a very real way. That's yeah. what Jesus is up to. That's the answer to Job's question. That's the way, as the psalmist said, the Lord will heal the brokenhearted, not just through big fancy miracles, but through walking with them, becoming weak like the weak, becoming stripped of our power and authority. God strips himself of the vestiges of, of looking like God and becomes weak for the sake of the weak. So does Paul. That's what Job is begging for. Job's whole life is begging for someone to just come and sit. Don't I read Job now and I just see, man, I bet he just longed for someone to just sit mm -hmm. by him. But you yes. get the impression his friends are standing there. They're speaking over him. They're lecturing to him. Imagine someone just going and sitting with him, being with him. Yep. That's how we begin. That's what Jesus does for us, which is so much far more profound than yelling at us or speaking at us or, or, or you know, bam, lightning bolt, you're healed now. Yep. Someone to sit with you, which is what you're called to embody, which is what's so beautiful about the priesthood is that that's that's your call. Your call is not what the Levitical priests did, which was to sit on their high thrones and yell at people. It was to actually, it's to actually be like Jesus and go in, be Jesus really literally and go into the homes and actually be weak with them. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, thank you for spending your week with us. Oh, oh holy yes. moly. Y'all thanks for uh, tuning in and uh, gosh, that's the best. You. Go out, be go, be sent. That's, that's what we say at the end of Mass. Because we really mean it. Mm-hmm. Eat alleluia, alleluia. <laughs> yeah, dude. All right, everybody. Well, send us an email. Send us your Facebook stuff. Send us your send us your credit card numbers. Whatever you want to send us, we'll be here. Dude, dude we'll max them out. It'll be fun. We'll uh, we, will, we will enjoy that. Father Peter's going to spend them all on fish. No, I'm not. You might. I'll spend it on the poor. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll be back next week. Uh, we will see you then. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, www.thomascenter.org. You can also send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. See you next week.